Um, <coughs> so last time, I guess Tim, well, Tim is back now. Um, Tim, did you teach last week? I guess we never even touched base. So uh, thank you so much, Tim, for, uh, for filling in. Um, it's kind of, kind of starts and stops to uh, getting kind of through this section of Acts, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it actually represents uh, the journey that they took and uh, the things that they encountered um, as we're going through Acts chapter 13. So last time we got together, um, we started going a little bit deeper into uh, what Paul had spoken. So Paul and Barnabas, um, they're in a uh, town uh, called Antioch uh, in Pisidia. There was, I think, 13 different Antiochs. Um, I think that's right. could be 16. But anyway, there's a, over a dozen Antiochs named for uh, Antiochus, uh, which his son had named for his father, Antiochus, uh, as he went around different areas. Um, and so this is one of them. And uh, it's right in the heart of Turkey. It's mostly a military outpost. It was a Roman um, colony uh, city, which meant that it had certain privileges. Um, and uh, we'll kind of talk about some of those things uh, uh, next time as we look at some of the other cities that they go to. Um, but they're in the synagogue there. There's a Jewish population that had been deported um, up to this area um, uh, about a hundred years beforehand. And so uh, a synagogue had grown and they're there and they're sharing uh, the history of Israel. Um, And then they show how God was kind of working within that history and leading up to the point of how now Christ is a part of this history. So Paul talks about John the Baptist and then, uh, you know, says that the Messiah that was foretold in their history, that Jesus uh, was him. That this Messiah, that he was uh, killed in Jerusalem, and that uh, he rose from the dead. And so he kind of concludes his message with you know, a message of hope uh, to those that are listening. But he also gives them a warning for those who would reject Jesus. And so afterwards, after he gives this message, um, many wanted to hear him the following week. It says that they begged to hear more the following week. And so presumably, you know, Baal and Barnabas are spending their week probably around the city, talking to people, and then we kind of will jump into uh, what happens. We started looking at it a little bit last time and then cut it short just because of time, and so we'll wrap it up this week. Um, As we kind of think about these things, uh, the gospel is being shared, and we're going to see two responses, two responses here, and a lot of the same responses that we see in a lot of the areas, although sometimes we only get one response to the gospel um, there. But one of the responses is, uh, acceptance, and then the other response is objections. And so this is where we start seeing a little bit more of the objections. We didn't see a whole lot when they went to Cyprus, but we're going to start seeing them here, and then it's going to be kind of a bigger component of Paul's ministry, or Paul and Barnabas's ministry together. So what are um, common objections to the gospel that you hear? So you're talking to somebody about Jesus and say their need or their uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of like put it in terms of how Paul was saying their need for um, a savior, and that Jesus is is uh, as here to um, be that hope of salvation for anyone who would believe in Him. But if you don't believe in Him, you know, then there will be judgment upon you. So, if that was like your message, what would you say to our culture, to the people that you you would be talking to? What are common objections you might hear? To that message. Okay, so why should I believe in a God who would send somebody to hell? All right, what do you? What would you say? Like the basis of that um, 
question is. Like, what do you think really is the root of like what they're getting at? Okay, so a flawed sense of justice. Okay, I would I would say that maybe a sense of fairness or you know in their in their minds. Okay, so that's a common objection. Why should I believe in a God who sends somebody to hell? Okay, it's definitely yeah, and I well, and I think we would say that's probably going to be the common thread that you would hear through all objections uh, for for that. Not necessarily. What are some other objections that you might hear? Okay, so why would a loving God yeah, tolerate all the things that go on today? And, you know, again, you look at the news and you see things that happen and things that are just heartbreaking. Um, you know, I could think of several news stories that you're just like, wow, I can't believe, can't believe that happened. So how would God either, either God's not powerful enough to save somebody or he's not loving enough to do something about it is, is sometimes how uh, those, those objections are framed. Okay, what else would, would you hear? Oh, too exclusive? Okay. So, you know, why, you know how, how could I choose amongst all the many different forms of religion? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, you know, and, and especially if you, you know, compare it to other religions with holy books, you know, why would I listen to you over the Muslim? Or, and so you can kind of get deep into the, the weeds, especially, you know, as, as, as you start hearing some of these objections, you're like, those are, those are valid objections. I mean, we wouldn't, wouldn't say that those responses um, are way out of left field. And it's typical for people to respond that way. Now, when you get those objections, do they deter you from sharing the gospel? Or could they deter you from, we'll put it in a hypothetical sense. So, could they deter you from sharing the gospel? If it's too real right now. What's that? Okay, so what if you're not prepared? Um, in what way? Prepared in what way? Okay. Okay, yeah. Uh, just like Peter says, right? You know, be... be uh, ready to share the hope that is within you, the reason for the hope that is, is within you. So, um, so maybe lack of preparation. What else? Fear. Fear? Okay, what, what would be the fear? Fear of man, fear of rejection, fear of being perceived as foolish. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, and when you say fear and fear of man, they're, they're kind of thing as you boil down to one, like could be fear of rejection, fear of looking, looking foolish, uh, we all want to kind of feel like we have it all together, and if especially we put our our faith into something, we then should have all the answers, right? And so if we don't have all the answers, I mean, really, Christianity is a, is a faith where we're not going to have all of the answers. There are going to be things where we just have to say, um, that's just kind of how it works, or I'm not exactly sure. But we do have lots of answers, and especially, I, I would say we have more answers than typically the person you're talking to. So I wouldn't say that you have to have all the answers, but we're going to have more answers than the people that we talk to. Or at least I, I would say justifiable answers, because um, they may have answers, but you know, how, how we respond. And so because of that, because you know, if you just know and have that confidence, 
um, it can help kind of motivate you and continue to push you forward. And I think that's, that's some of what we're going we're gonna to see and maybe rest assured that that's where Paul is coming from. Plus, you know, I think God has given him a, a determination that, that we're just going to see is, uh, is uh, somewhat supernatural at times. Plus, he's got a, a person there that is by his side as he's going through um, some of the things he's going to face. But actually, we're going to see this in the next few places that he's going to go to and the next few places that he's going to uh, meet um, as rejection continues. Today is just kind of the first maybe um, uh, resistance that he faces. So right now, um, we'll, we'll start back in verse 44. We covered these couple verses in chapter 13, covered uh, these couple verses towards the end of last time, but it's good to kind of, since it's right within the context and the paragraph that we're reading, um, to go over it again. And really, this is kind of where Paul and Barnabas are going to read the scene. Um, and uh, it's helpful for us as we, you know, whoever we're talking to, to kind of read um, who it is that, that we're talking to. So verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered, to hear the word of the Lord. So remember, they, people were begging to hear what Paul uh, and Barnabas said and say, please come back next week and, and share more. And invariably, if they're begging to hear something, they're probably going to do what? Who do you think they're going to tell like, about their experience? Yeah, if you see something amazing or hear something amazing, you're typically going to tell somebody else, and it could just come up within conversation, or, hey, you need to make it to the, syn- the, uh, the synagogue this week. Um, these guys are from out of town, and, and what, they, what they're talking about will blow you away. Um, invariably, probably, uh, Paul and Barnabas are out mingling amongst the people, and we'll see that uh, as part of their pattern in ministry. But a week later, it says the whole city gathered together. And we talked last time that this would include Jews, definitely, because they're going to the synagogue. It would uh, include converts to Judaism. We said that there were you know, Jewish converts those that had not been circumcised yet but um, had believed in the God of the Old Testament, they would have been welcomed in the synagogue. And even some Gentiles who were curious. But now amongst the crowd, we're also going to see as the crowd swells, people that would be beyond, be beyond typically those who would be um, at the synagogue. And so just kind of Gentiles in general, those who are probably now curious, maybe heard some things um, about what is being said uh, and you know what, what needs to be offered. All right, so... The only thing that has been said in the synagogue is what? What is Paul, what, again, what's that message that Paul has said to those that are in the synagogue? Yeah, so we see that, right? And, that, and I think that speaks specifically to the Jews. What, what does it say in verse 38? Yeah, so forgiveness of sins in verse 38, and um, in verse 39, what else? Okay, frees you from the law, and from the burden of sin. And Paul will go there in some of his letters, kind of even speak to, you know, if you think of Romans 3, Romans 2, where he says that those who um, who do not have a law, who do what is according to the law, have a law unto themselves. Um, basically, that Gentiles, even though they don't operate under the Mosaic law, that they really follow a moral law and a moral code. But everyone 
you know, that, that Paul is kind of giving this message to, he kind of opens up the door and says, whoever hears this, right, you'll have forgiveness of sins and freed from everything you cannot be freed from by the law of Moses. And Gentiles would have said, wow, these guys are like under the law of Moses and they do things very strictly, like way more than we as Gentiles do who are free to worship whatever pagan god we want to. And so there's that message of freedom from sin because they would have had a moral law knowing that they violate God's standard or whatever God that they follow. And so that message was kind of left to them, plus a warning for those who don't. And so as, as somebody who goes out of the synagogue and kind of maybe shares that message, it almost becomes more inclusive uh, to then just those who are at the synagogue, um, even that's who Paul is directing it to, but it becomes more inclusive. And so you have this crowd now that are coming to gather to hear what is being said. And so verse 45 says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. That word revile is blasphemo, which is uh, blasphemy. You know? And so they were speaking you know, against what Paul was saying as if he was speaking words against God. Um, and really, you know, this, these strong words. And so they reviled him, saying, like, he is, his words are violating what God has said and, and degrading who Paul was um, uh, by saying that he, he you know, was blasphemous. Um, now, what, what caused the, the Jews to contradict Paul? We kind of touched on that last time. What was it that really incited them to this reviling, this, this blasphemy against Paul specifically? What's that? Well, it was yeah. They were meeting on the Sabbath, but what does it say? What did, what did you know? It says they were filled with jealousy um, when they saw what they saw the crowds, right? And so you know, Luke kind of points out the issue is that the issue was they saw all these people that are gathering. Uh, these crowds are much larger than the crowds that they typically get. And whenever you have a larger crowd, there's always going to be some sort of envy or jealousy emotion that wow, this person may be more popular than me. Um, and so as they start seeing these crowds, but there's also another thing is that, that Jesus got because his crowds grew, but who were people that were in Jesus's crowds that the Jews had a problem with? Gentiles. And who, who specifically, well, not necessarily, not really Gentiles though, because when Jesus spoke, he was, he did have some Gentiles come and listen, we definitely know that, but who are the people that were amongst the crowds that the Jews that the religious Jews had a problem with. Because these would be Jews, but they're Jews who aren't living according to the law. What's that? Sinners, Sinners yeah. Tax collectors. Tax collectors, right. So you have all these people that, you know, they may be Jewish, but they're not following Jewish, you know, law. They're not following Jewish tradition. They're definitely not moral people. And so immediately, though, a Gentile would just fall into that category. And as they see these Gentiles coming, it would be like, what? You know, and so, you know, if you stopped and thought, I, I always kind of think of this, this uh, message, I probably shared it before, is um, when we lived in Arkansas, I remember we went to the park, and there was like this uh, um, kind of pavilion area, and all these motorcycles showed up, and they were kind of congregating out there, and there was like a little bridge that went from the park to the pavilion area, and one of our kids kind of like toddled over there, and I was like, well, let's, you know, uh, let's kind of not go over that area. It kind of looks like a rough crowd. And when I, you know, one went across and I picked, um, I don't know if it was Cole or Levi, but picked, picked him up and noticed that the bikers were setting up for like a concert, but they had, you know, 
Christian symbols. So it was like a Christian biker gang, you know. So I was like, oh, you know, and eventually later they're singing praise songs, you know, in their leather jackets and whatever. But I was for me, I was like, I definitely made, you know, a kind of gut reaction by what I saw and assumed certain things. Um, I guess I didn't really think, why would a biker gang be setting up in a pavilion? But anyway, you know, there's some, some logic that goes out the window when your kids are involved. Um, and so... Uh, so anyway, so, but that's kind of the thing that we think of, you know, if we see, like, you saw just a group of people that came, um, you know, came to, I don't know, a friend's house or whatever, you know, what would your gut reaction be? Like, uh, you know, who are these people? Like, they don't deserve to hear this message, but we definitely see it's not necessarily a, a, a thing where the Jewish leaders are now, um, you know, uh, being exclusive, they want to be exclusive to the fact that, like, now Paul has kind of crossed the line and invited others to hear what he has to say. And so it's really the heart of it is jealousy. And we all have that. I mean, if we want to even think about churches. You know, churches have invariably, and we talk about it in seminary, about a how big is your church kind of syndrome. You know, a bigger church means a more successful ministry in people's eyes. Um, and so that ends up kind of sometimes being a marker. And so some will actually kind of go on the opposite and have, you know, kind of a, just a gut reaction like, well, they're a bigger church because. And so start making up reasons for the reasons why those things are that way. And it's really just either jealousy um, or maybe some other motive. I'm not saying everything is wrong for that, um, but that's, that's kind of the heart of the issue. And so they're reading the crowds. And so how do they respond to the people? So now we're getting to kind of new material that we're getting to. Verse 46. Verse 46. It's in Paul and Barnabas. They spoke out boldly. Okay, so um, you possibly, you know, you stop and you think that crowds are gathering. All of a sudden you hear, instead of people begging you from the the Sabbath, like, come hear you, you're starting to hear, like, words said against you and, you know, reviling words that are spoken to you. You could either, you know, stand up to the plate or you could shrink back. And that's what we see that, that they, don't, they don't shrink back. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay, why was it necessary for uh, them to speak to the Jews first? Paul says that. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. So why, why is that? Okay. 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 Definitely true. Definitely true. So they, they are, you know, God's, God's chosen people. Um, that we would have said that the Jews rejected uh, Jesus. So now the door has opened up, especially when we know that their ministry, that Paul and Barnabas are now sent to go minister and, and be a, <clears throat> a light to the Gentiles. <clears throat> what else would, uh, why, why else would it be necessary to go to the Jews first before going to the Gentiles? So they're following Jesus' pattern, which is definitely true, but Jesus really only went to the, the, the Jews exclusively. They are the, uh, you know, God's chosen people. 
But God's chosen people had rejected him, which allows now the Gentiles to hear the message. What else could be involved? Okay, yeah, and there, there's a very practical reason. So, so um, <clears throat> spiritually speaking, I'm going to go to you Jews first. Because one, you know Paul's heart if you read Romans 9, that like, you are, they are my people. And, and he's going to first associate with Jews more readily. Uh, but he's going to go there and, and at least see, is there anybody who's like me who would hear the word of God? But I think in a very practical Reason, and we'll get to this when we get to Acts chapter 15, when there's a letter sent to the Gentile churches about things that they shouldn't do, and one of them is to not provoke the Jews. If they went to the, the Gentile population, you know, say they came in and they didn't wait to the Sabbath and just started speaking to people in the marketplaces, um, by the time they got to the Sabbath, it might have already sparked some, uh, some of that either jealousy or reviling, um, because they're associating, just like Jesus associating with the sinners and tax collectors, that the Gentiles would have kind of fit that bill. And so practically, I'm going to go to the Jews first, so I can not automatically you know, bring up walls, so you, you'll at least hear my message. And once you then have given, been given the clear message to either accept or reject, then I now feel confident to go to the Gentiles who haven't even heard the message about Jesus Christ. And so there's you know, a couple reasons. You know, one is there's a special place for the Jews. But practically and pragmatically, it's so that he doesn't um, automatically uh, exclude them if he went to the Gentiles first. And that's why you're going to see, for all those reasons, why he goes to uh, and shares the gospel to those people. Um, Paul says that those who are rejecting this word judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Now, why does he say that? He says, if you guys don't re- you reject this, uh, this um, word, you have now judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. He's not saying that Jesus judges you as unworthy. It's that they have judged themselves unworthy. Why do you think that, uh, why he uses those terms? What's that? Okay. Yeah, so he, he definitely is getting to the fact that it is their choice, it is their responsibility, it is up to them to accept this message, not just be born into it, but to then say, I either <clears throat> accept this Messiah or reject the Messiah. <clears throat> what have they done? They have what? <clears throat> if, they, uh, if they haven't accepted the Messiah, they have rejected him, right? <clears throat> if they rejected Christ, it means that they are what? They feel above Christ, now, the only way to come to Christ is to feel that you are unworthy of Christ. So there's kind of a bit of, an, uh, of, un, uh, of irony here <clears throat> that they feel like they're above him, but they lack the humility um, what makes them unworthy. Like, if you feel like you're unworthy of eternal life, you have humility. But by rejecting Christ, uh, the only way to really accept Christ and to get eternal life is to see yourself as unworthy. It's really what Jesus was saying as, you know, the first will be last and the last will be first, right? The only way to gain your life is to lose it. Um, and so, uh, so he kind of says it in those terms and really, like, leads it, you know, leaves it that kind of with them is that they lack the humility to see that, you know, by th- hurling these, these insults at me and reviling me, you've made yourself unworthy of getting this eternal life that Jesus Christ speaks of. You're too prideful uh, in sense. All right, so who does then Paul and Barnabas turn to? 
He goes to the Gentiles, right? And why the Gentiles? Because they would what? They give him a hearing, right? So now, now he goes to those who would listen to him. So he tried with the group, right? He gave them the gospel. He clearly said it to them. They rejected it. And so now he moves on to those that would give them an ear to hear the message that they're there to proclaim. Um, what, you know, so why is this different than the earlier times when the Gentiles heard the gospel? Um, let's maybe think about a couple of the times. What were a couple of times that a Gentile or Gentiles has heard the gospel and responded in, in the book of Acts. So we know there's a couple of times where people in, in uh, Jesus' ministry had, had heard the gospel. Um, and I guess you could include them as well. But typically... The Ethiopian eunuch? Okay, yeah, so that was with Philip, right? Yeah, so... Um, uh, okay, so that was, that was one thing. What was, what was interesting about that? Yeah, and he's kind of... He's kind of one of those, like, he's a Jewish convert, but yeah, and uh, because he was a eunuch, I don't know where he falls as far as the terms of circumcision, but, you know, we're not necessarily sure, like, he's definitely considered a, an Ethiopian, so he kind of has a special sect that he's like, you know, it's like this one, one-off thing to go to a, an area that would have been, would have been Gentile. Um, so definitely true, and, and we can lump him into to that category. Um, what's different about these times? If you kind of pause and think about it, is that with Cornelius, how did, how did, so that was kind of the first, one of the first ones. I guess we'll say the Ethiopian is, is, is two, but kind of Cornelius is the one that like everyone's like, oh, you went to a Gentile's house. What, what really was like precipitated that? What's that? Yeah, so sent Peter there and really sent people from Cornelius to go get Peter and bring him back. And so there was kind of like a, uh, a seek and, and listen. Uh, what was the next one? The next one's kind of maybe a little bit more, more fuzzy. You probably wouldn't, wouldn't hit it. But uh, remember Barnabas, where did he go first to kind of, he heard that some Gentiles were hearing the gospel. Do you remember what city that was in? Kind of same, same city that we're in right now, but different area. <laughs> so he went to Antioch. That was really what brought him up to Antioch uh, because he heard that some people were kind of establishing a church in a Gentile area. And so, um, uh, so kind of went there. But from that, we see that probably it was people that were attracted to what was going on in the city. Now here, we're kind of starting to see that Paul is now kind of now going out to the Gentiles. And even though they're, they're now gathered to hear him speak, um, he says that we are now turning to the Gentiles. And you're going to start seeing that, is that he's going to go to places where Gentiles are and share the gospel with them. He's not, he's not going to rely on them coming to them, because that was really the model that uh, God had established with Israel. You were going to be a light to the nations. You were going to be different and distinct from the nations. But you're going to draw people in um, because of who you are, right? And some people have... <clears throat> you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, kind of uh, methods of evangelism where because of the lifestyle you live and because of how you act, right, you draw people in and people are curious and they ask questions, maybe, you know, sometimes. But there's also a go out and, and seek other people. And so there kind of has to be that, that different, uh, different approaches. And so we're going to start to see that, that. That ends up becoming the model, that shift of going out and seeking people who, um, you know, who have never heard the gospel, who aren't really aware. They might have maybe heard of the Old Testament, um, but sharing these things. And we're going to start to see that uh, more specifically as we get 
you know, as Paul then goes on a second missionary journey and goes further towards Greece um, and into more Gentile land. He still kind of has areas where there, there are large Jewish centers, especially here with a large Jewish synagogue. We're going to start to see that different, right? That he's, they're going to go to move on to them. Um, so <clears throat> he says, uh, let's see here. He says, you are worthy, uh, behold, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> now that is speaking of Isaiah 49. So I want to just turn there just real quick and pull a couple things in from Isaiah 49. That's what Paul is quoting. And says you will be a light, right? Again, that model is a light as in like attractive light. Um, but now this light <coughs> kind of has this, you are bringing the light. Um, uh, was verse 41 we'll start with and read to about verse 7. Just so we'll get the context of what Paul is saying. Um, so this is uh, one of four what they call servant songs uh, in Isaiah. This is the second one. Um, of the servant songs. And he says, Listen to me, O coastlands. What verse is that? Chapter 49, verse 1. Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah 49, verse 1. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe I said it in my mind. Or I'm talking Yoda. Verse 1 of the chapter of Isaiah, 49th. I don't know. Um, if you're reading a Hebrew Bible, sometimes it's different. Anyway, probably not this issue. All right. So, verse. Chapter 49, verse 1 of Isaiah. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. All right, well, now we see, like, who this message is to. Those on the coastlands were typically, you know, like the Philistines, and, you know, if you think of Tyre and Sidon, those who were uh, Phoenicia, those who were not Jewish. So, and then lands of afar, right, speaking outside of Israel. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, so here's the verse that Paul quotes, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is fruitful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now, when you're kind of like thinking about this and listening to this, like, you know, who are, who, and, and when Paul says this, now who is this talking about? This servant, this holy one. When we say you're going to be a light to the world, um, who is that supposed to be? Okay, so so the Jewish nations, and at first you kind of get that that sense that it seems like you know it's 
verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And you might say, okay, well, he's talking about Israel as the nation. But then you're going to see, well, this Israel is going to raise up the tribes of Jacob. So it's going to be somebody else. He's also going to have the title, the Holy One of, uh, what does he say? Just, oh, and his Holy One, um, which was actually a you know, a title that Paul spoke of earlier when he talked to the Jews in the synagogue the week before. He talked about the Holy One of Israel from Isaiah 55 and then went to another psalm to kind of clarify who this Holy One was. David read, read this psalm and talked about this Holy One, but it wasn't him, it was somebody else. And so he's kind of making the case for the Messiah and he kind of pulls this back in that it's this Holy One. So that would be who? Jesus, right? So we know that as the Messiah, as, as Jesus, this Holy One. Now, how does though, Paul and Barnabas kind of apply that to who's going to the, the nations? Right? You know, because Paul says in verse 47, back in Acts uh, chapter 13, he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. So how are they applying that? Okay, good. Yeah, so they're actually applying it to themselves as representatives of Christ. Now, they wouldn't say, like, right, we are the light to the Gentiles, because we know from Isaiah that this Holy One, and it's, it's amazing how God in, in, uh, in Isaiah says, it's too light a thing to bring the tribes of Jacob back, right? <laughs> like, it's, that's too easy, right? That's too small of a task. I want you to go beyond these 12 tribes, and you're going you're gonna to reach to the ends of the earth, and you're going to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. But we know that God's salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. So it's really kind of speaking about all these things, right? Speaking about Israel in the sense that you are to be the light of the nation, but you're kind of not doing it. And Isaiah speaks of, of this light of the nations going further to his servant because Israel was supposed to be God's servant to do these things, but they failed. So that's why a Messiah needed to be brought in to do what they couldn't do. And so this Messiah is going to be this light of the nations, but then Paul and Barnabas are going to be that light, carrying the light of Christ to be the, you know, because Jesus is now resurrected in heaven. They're taking on that mantle, the torch, to kind of bring that light to the nations. And so that's how Paul responds, right? Like the hair reviling here, you know, hey, you jealousy of the crowds, and they go right to the heart of the center of what they know is going to actually probably provoke the Jews. But Paul's already given this message a week ago. You either respond to Christ or I'm going to go you know, refer to one of your prophets who said, if you, you, know, you fail to believe in me, there is judgment upon you. And so now you've rejected Christ. And so now I'm doing exactly what God had promised, that we're just taking the light to the ends of the earth. And so there's really no need to revile me. If you're going to revile anybody, you should revile God, because this is part of God's plan. You know, and in their mind, you know, you know, emotions are taking over. They're not really you know, reasoning, but if they were able to stop and think, like, well, what, what did you think God's plan? Like, when do you think this would happen? Like, when would God eventually go to the ends of the earth? Like, that has to happen in God's plan, so why not now? Because in the Jews' mind, the Gentiles are, like, unworthy, but at what point are they going to be worthy? They're never going to be worthy, right, until we bring the gospel, until Christ, you know, makes them unworthy, frees them from sin, frees them from the burden of whatever they're, they're uh, dealing with, and gives them the, the light and the hope of, of salvation. And so now, now Paul says, you know, this is kind of like his... Uh, 
who was it? Who did? Uh, it was Kenny Rogers who did uh, No One to Hold Him, No One to Fold Him. Right? So, so I call this reaching out and retreating. So he kind of, this is kind of like No One to Hold Him, No One to Fold Him. And that's, that's, kind, of, uh, that's kind of what we see in verse 49 back in, back in Acts. Chapter 3. 13. Sorry. Chapter 13. So when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. And the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul says, we're moving to the Gentiles, we're bringing the light to them, and immediately you see how the Gentiles respond. How does it say they responded? Yeah, it says they rejoiced. Uh, and that word is ekkarion, which karyos is joy, and that ek is kind of out of. So there's like this joy that is coming out of them. They're responding in an outward appearance where you would see the joy that is from them, right? And so, you know, when you see that, right, what are you assuming? What are you assuming when someone responds with outward joy, that whatever it is that they've heard, they've internalized, they've understood it, and they know and know exactly what that means to them. They are changed. They are changed. And it says they, they rejoiced and they glorified what? What is it that they glorified? The word of the Lord. Right? It could mean specifically the word of the Lord that Paul had just said that now God's salvation is going out to the ends of the world. Now, if you, you know, we'll, we'll uncover this as we get a little bit deeper in because when we start going to different Gentile areas, things are going to be said um, about certain belief systems. But it's just a general belief system is that you know, most Gentiles just believed whatever they wanted to believe. They believed in gods that felt you know, right to them. Sometimes it was Greek gods. Sometimes it was you know, Roman gods. Sometimes it was you know, whatever it is that they wanted or made up, what suited them. But there was always going to be some sort of emptiness because you know, Greek and Roman gods, you know, they, they never really, they were, um, if you've ever studied Greek and Roman gods, they were never really like a god you wanted to put your trust in. Right? It was something like it was never something that was, ended up good for you. Um, doesn't mean like you, you believe in things that are good for you, but it's really they had their own agenda and they could have, you know, responded to the people or not. They were very, uh, it was hard to, really hard to know whether the God that you worshipped really was a God that cared for you or not. Now this God, right, the God of the Old Testament, right, had a chosen people and kind of brought them out. And if you know the history, you know, God was like working with this specific people. I mean, it's an intimate God, a relational God. And for a, for a Gentile God or pagan God, it's like, wow, that is like different. And now that this God like wants to include me into that story and that plan of salvation, something that for them would have like lifted a burden because, you know, again, they're just following whatever they think is right. And sometimes they didn't believe anything at all. Or if it was Greek philosophy, um, it was uh, either indulge in pleasure or indulge in the opposite of that, like abstain from everything or some sort of mix in between. And it was, you know, nothing that really ever uh, satisfied. And it was always arguments and debates and things like that. And we'll uncover those things as we get closer to, to you know, Athens and, and Greece. Um, but that was kind of what, how the Gentiles, you know, believed. And so to now hear this message that like, hey, 
Here's, here's somebody who came. He res, rose from the dead. You can go to Jerusalem. It just happened. I had a conversation with this Jesus, and this message is for you, that they're responding with joy. And they're glorifying the fact that God would now open it up to them as well. They knew Jews were devout. I mean, that was the one thing that a Gentile knew, is that they were strict, they were devout, and they were kept out of whatever it is that they did. And so there would have always been a, a mystery about what it is that they did or why you know, they couldn't be involved as well. And so this would have been something, for at least those who responded, would have been like a sense of inclusion into what God had planned ever since the beginning. And so they responded to this word of the Lord about being a light that is now coming to them. <clears throat> What's that? Um, you know, yeah, I think, I think in some sense, right, if you live amongst the Jews, you know, you would have known, I don't know, I don't know how in depth, I mean, I don't, you know, I guess that's, I don't know how, how, how much you would, you know, a person would have known, but any curious person, it wasn't necessarily shut out to them, the information, but it would have been like, this is what you have to do, and you have to become circumcised, and you have to start eating this way, and you have to start doing these things, and so it would have been probably a lot of law thrown at them, right, in order to become one of us, these are the things that you have to do, right? And this is actually now, it's not only what you have to do, you just have to believe, which is now going to throw things into a confusion when Paul finally makes it back after his missionary journey. It's like, well, there are some things you're going to have to start doing, and, and you're going to have to start living, you know, like you accept Christ. You can't just be like, you live like a pagan, but, you know, follow Christ. Those two don't um, mesh well together. But that's why, you know, Paul and Barnabas are, are going to try to stay as long as possible to pour into them. We're actually going to see that's probably why Paul and Barnabas come back, because you would see after the events that happen, like, why go back to that city? You know, you're going to be pushed out, and the next place they're going to go, they're going to get stones thrown at them, uh, left for dead. Um, like, that's an area you don't want to go back to, but they need, you know, they need that support because, you know, there's more to uh, following Christ than just believing. You know, there's more that Christ has to offer. Um, so, what's that? It's kind of a parallel how the first Protestants responded to Rome during the Reformation. You had this elite religious class that threw a lot of law at them, and they felt that they were unworthy to approach God. And all of a sudden, now the door's been thrown open to them. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great. That's a great parallel. Yeah. You know, it's a great parallel for those that grew up in a church that maybe was legalistic, and then all of a sudden, like, grace, and you're like, what? You know, I mean, that's, you know, those are, those are, are exactly, and, and why? Because the Catholic Church was so widespread, why the Protestant Reformation was like, we're willing to die for this, because we feel like, I mean, this is like, the, now the word is opened up to us, and we see exactly how God wants us to live. We're not under this oppression of, you know, instead of the law of Moses, the law of you know, of Rome, I guess, is, is how you could even, even respond. That's great, a great parallel. So, you know, Christ is satisfying this need, and they're responding in this way. Um, they're probably, again, you know, Paul says this light, and he, again, probably there's ba- some background things that have been, have been talked about. That's why the crowd gathers. It's not necessarily like, you know, what are we here for? <clears throat> but they would have probably had some background knowledge. And that's typically what you see, you know, as, you, as somebody responds to the word, that there's more going on than just like, Hey, you're the light to the Gentiles. Like if you ever shared that, share that with somebody. Hey, I just want you to know that, uh, or that, um, you know, uh, 
Jesus Christ, he died and he's here to save you. And if you don't believe in him, he rose again. If you don't believe in him, there's judgment for you. Like, you know, just a couple sentences. Usually most people don't respond to that. Like, ah, sign me up, right? There's usually a little bit more about like those questions that people have, like the, the sense of the need uh, and, and all of those things. And so likely Paul and Barnabas and even the people that went out um, had been, been likely kind of uh, talking about these things up until this point. So what does verse 48 indicate about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? As we see these things... Okay, yeah. Clearly, you know, the, way, the way that Luke says it is that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, right? That there were those that, you know, no more, no less. And so those that were going to respond are going to respond, but they have to respond, right? They have to, they have to hear. Because Paul just said a few verses ago, uh, take this message, and if you don't, there is judgment, you know, upon you. And so that, that is, you know... That, that is the, the deal, but there is kind of the synergy between God and man that has to happen. So what happens as a result of this? We'll say in verse, uh, verse 49. All right, so the word was spread, right? So people heard the word, they responded to that, and they shared it with others, and people were responding to that, right? And especially Gentiles who are sharing this message how much background would they have? Even if they kind of understood or heard a little bit about Jewish history, they would definitely, you know, this is all new to them. Does it mean that they need to know everything in order to share the gospel? No, we see that, right? Paul was definitely, like, learned, right? We know that he was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, so he could respond to any of those questions, but they don't have any of that. They're just responding and sharing the things that they're responding to, this need of being freed from the burden of sin and being made right before God. And they're sharing it with others, and it's spreading um, across the region, not only in that city, but it, you know, the idea is that it's, it's, uh, it's outside of that area as well. What was the other reaction? Jerusalem weren't too happy. So Paul and Barnabas got the brunt of the persecution, right? Um, and it says that the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Um, so why devout women and leading men? What do you think they, the Jews needed to, to get them to come alongside of what they were doing. What's that? Influence, okay? So why the leading men would indicate, now this is probably, and depending on, on who you read, um, are these leading men in, in Jewish circles, or is this because this is more of a Gentile area? Is this leading Gentiles? We don't quite see that. I, I tend to think it's more Jewish, um, because when you get to the next place they go to, you're actually going to see that the Jews get the Gentiles alongside them, which you Luke doesn't say, but what we don't know. But um, so if you are, you know, who's typically going to respond to leading men? What's that? Okay, well, who, who do you think? I don't know. I guess uh, leaders, 
usually usually attract who? Leading men usually attract, I guess you could say their wives, but what's that? Followers. And I would probably say that the leading men, as contrasted to devout women, leading men will probably attract the attention of the men, right? Either those that are working beneath them, those that have influence under them, but leading men would have power over other men, typically. What's that? Tell <laughs> we'll leave that off mic. We'll leave that off mic, yeah. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Now, devout women, right, would have more of an influence over other women, right, because they don't necessarily have the power over other women. I know. Some of it is how I phrase things. So, um, so, so because why? Why devout women? They have leading men and devout women. What's that? It's kind of, they have respect, right? And, but in, in, because of what? Because of their character and their devotion. Not just the status that they're in, right? And it's kind of interesting that how, like, how you, know, you see like, the Jews appealing to different people uh, based on, on you know, how we would say even now. Like men re- respond to usually men in power and women usually respond to women who have you know, a longstanding character um, who are now starting to say things that maybe may, would make the other women like change their mind, not just because of what's, you know, what position they're in, um, but because of, of who they are. So the Jews try to get them to incite this uh, against them. So it's short, they're using peer pressure, right, and things that we see in politics all the time. <clears throat> How did Paul and Barnabas respond? It says they drove them out of their district, and what did they do in verse 51? Shook the dust off their feet and moved on. What does shaking the dust off your feet indicate? What's that? I'm done with you. I'm done with you. But why the dust? What's, what's that? Ichabod, yeah. So, um, so to actually, you know, like they're, they're basically, you know, attracting, as they walk through that region, they're attracting that dust. They're saying, like, your dust isn't even worthy of my, of my feet. Um, Jesus commanded that when he sent his disciples out, right? And he said, you go to these towns, and if they don't want to hear what you say, when you leave the town, shake the dust off your feet, kind of as a message. Uh, one commentator had said that rabbis typically had that, had that when they went traveling through Gentile regions and came back to Israel, that they would actually shake the dust off that because they were going back into the Holy Land. And so this is kind of ironic that it's like, you know, your, your, your dust uh, is not worthy of me, kind of back in their face of something that they would do as they would travel. Now, they're in a Gentile land, but that was something that rabbis back in Jerusalem would do. So... When they left, what were they leaving behind? What's that? Some converts, converts, right? And we would say converts make up a a church, right? So they they were leaving behind a church, basically disciples that were filled with joy and were filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And so when those that would hear the message, what did Paul, Paul and Barnabas do? People that wanted to hear the message, what did Paul and Barnabas do? What's that? They shared it. Yeah, they kept, they kept speaking. Exactly. Yeah, this is not, this is not you know, a trick question, right? That's right. Because they knew that God had appointed some to salvation. And those that would reject, right, they would reject the message, what did they do? They moved on, right? And so I think, again, as we kind of read, like, the things that, that are happening, right, they didn't shrink away in the face of opposition, because they knew in the crowd there were those that were going to respond to the message. And their really message was to those that God had appointed to hear. But eventually, 
when everybody who you know, would hear the message of salvation responded, it was time now to move on. And so they, it says, they, you know, we're going to see that. They're going to stay as long as possible until the time where it becomes very clear to them that it's time to move on. That's the, that's the foldum, right? They're, they're going to stay as long as they can and share with whoever they can. But then when it's time to go, then it's just time to go. They don't resist it. They just move on to the next place. And really, you know, some of it is for protection and, you know, time to move on. And they do that. So... So how can we summarize this and kind of, kind of internalize this, right? Share the gospel when given the opportunity, uh, but be active in looking for those opportunities, right? They went to the synagogue and they went to, you know, spoke to the crowd and they responded to the things that uh, God was evidently, you know, having before them. Um, a good tactic is to share about Jesus and his resurrection. That's what Paul did. He talked about their, their history and then talked about Jesus and his resurrection. He supported the claim with what the Bible earlier predicted. So he's not saying, I'm not making this up. This is evidence and based on something that is before me, not, you know, nothing that, um, that I've done. And so we can use those things. We can use testimony of archaeology and things that will confirm the biblical message. Right? We know that some will want to hear more, and so we respond to that, continue to talk to them, but some will reject, and so those that reject, we just move on. Right? And sometimes you can't move on, and sometimes it's family, right? but you might move on in your conversations and then maybe try again a little bit later, but realize now's not the right time because at this time God has not appointed this person to believe. We know that God is sovereign in regards to salvation. We know that they have a responsibility, which kind of is it was where we feel the pressure or even the pride, but we also know that God is responsible for bringing this person to salvation, and we just trust in that. All right, any, any final questions or comments you guys want to make? Did some of the Gentiles know the Scriptures because they were actually in the synagogue with them, or would they not have been in the synagogue at all? <clears throat> Crowds, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to say like, yeah, I would say strictly just just from the context, we don't know. All we know is that people begged them to come, and then large crowds came. But if you say, hey, I want you to come, like, I, I don't know. I guess if you just think practically, I want, hey, let's go to this uh, musician, or let's go see this, you know, I don't know, somebody speak. And if somebody has no idea who they are, you usually like give a background for that, right? Uh, if they're like, "Oh yeah, that would be great. I know him. I like him," you know, then you you know you're, you're going to be willing to come. And so some of it might probably was like people have heard, um, you know, these towns. Uh, there's going to be a large Jewish population, so they would have kind of known people coming and going. It's just like if you go any place and you see people in religious garb, you're always like, "What does that mean?" I mean, we were at the airport um, uh, last week. Uh, there were men with like red dots uh, on their foreheads, and our kids kept saying, "What are those red dots? What are those red dots?" We're like, "Just keep it quiet. We'll talk to you later." Um, so, so you know, but you obviously like know and understand and see and are curious, and so they would have known. They would also known that they're not welcome at the synagogue. Uh, but how much they knew of Jewish scripture, I don't know. I imagine they would have had some understanding, at least a general basis, about what they believed. Um, but there definitely would have been people who would have been welcome in the synagogue that were curious to come. So, yeah, but that's, that's, that's good. And I imagine, again, if people responding, they're usually responding with some background to what's going on. It's, it's not a blind faith. Yeah. <laughs> 
And when we see the rest of Acts, Paul, and Bar- Paul does not, um, it's not like we see him, like he's in his study for a week, you know, he doesn't emerge until like the next Sabbath. Like he's always out and about talking to people for better or for worse. Um, and because of that, anytime he's given an opportunity to speak, he talks about what God did in his life and about Israel's history. So, I mean, he's probably just walking around talking and, you know, stirring up people and, you know, saying, I'll, I'll talk more of the, the Sabbath. And really the Sabbath was kind of the critical point where people, you know, were there. So, anyway. Um, all right, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pause there and we'll pick up to where they go next. We know they go to Iconium. We'll see what happens uh, when they make it to Iconium next. All right, we're, you guys are dismissed.